0: Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. This is Francesco podcasting from the headquarters of Amethix Technologies based in Belgium. Today, I'm not alone. In fact, I'm very excited to introduce you to John Crone, who's the author of a very interesting book um, that goes under the title of Deep Learning Illustrated. Hi, John, how are you doing?
1: Hi there, Francesco. It's uh, wonderful to be on your podcast with you, and I'm doing very well today. Thank you.
0: That's nice. So we have a lot to talk today because, in fact, uh, I would like to start from a bit your background and uh, your introduction so that the listeners of Data Science At Home podcasts can
1: get to know you. Sure. Sounds great. So I'm the chief data scientist at a machine learning company called Untapped, based in New York. And we build machine learning models that are wrapped behind nice user interfaces so that you know non-technical people can use them in a click-and-point way. And we're going to talk about this later on, I imagine, but the particular specialization that we have is building tools to automate labor-intensive parts of human resources or recruitment. So we try to make the lives easier of people who work in that space. In addition to my work at Untapped. As you mentioned, I had my first book just come out. It's called Deep Learning Illustrated, and we're gonna talk a bunch more about that as well, I imagine, Uh, and I do a few other smaller things on the side. I teach my own deep learning curriculum here at the New York City Data Science Academy. Um, I also guest lecture at Columbia University, and um, starting in September 2019, I began a research grant from the National Institutes of Health in the US to apply deep learning to machine vision research, uh, and that's also at Columbia University.
0: Wow, this is all very cool. I mean, uh, I, I'm really eager to talk more about your book and also uh, your, your projects. I would not say pet projects because they are pretty consistent projects in, uh, in, uh, in the real world. I mean, these are real world applications, in fact. Uh, John, I have one specific question before we start. What convinced you to write a book about deep learning in the first place?
1: So in 2016, uh, the International Conference on Machine Learning, ICML, was held in uh, Times Square in New York. And our office is not far from there. So I went to this conference and it just so happened, you know, this is one of the best uh, academic machine learning conferences there is. Um, alongside the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference, NIPS. So um, it was wonderful to be able to just pop up op- to just kind of walk there, 10-minute walk up and up and watch these lectures. And I was struck by a particular lecture that uh, was a history of artificial neural networks and deep learning um, from somebody who had been involved with this research from the 80s through to today, and he talked a lot about the deep learning community that was created um, that helped I uh, come up with the, the breakthroughs in deep learning theory, which are all kind of intuitive, and so they come about nicely through collaboration, and it sounded like from even having a couple beers with other people. Um, and so... Inspired by that talk, then that evening, I went to a a popular meetup here in New York. And at the beginning of this meetup, uh, they always ask, do you have any announcements? Uh, Does anybody in the audience have any announcements? And I stood up nervously and I said, you know, I was at this talk this morning and I was really inspired. And I think it would be great to have a a group uh, in New York, like a deep learning study group to study deep learning together. And uh, as I spoke... I became more and more nervous because as I looked around the room, it didn't even really seem like anyone was nodding their head. Uh, a couple hundred people there, not really uh, making much eye contact. And when I sat down, nothing happened. Uh, then there was a talk for an hour. And at the end of the talk, I was swarmed by about a dozen people. And they formed the the beginning of this deep learning study group that I had. And so, they, so I just had this email list of first a dozen people and very quickly became 150 people. Um, and now I think we're something like 200 or 250 people, and we get reliably uh, 30 or 40 people coming out to every study group session. So that started in 2016. And, um, on, and so because I was organizing these study group sessions, uh, you know, we would agree together you know, what uh, textbook chapters to study or what academic lectures to view, and then we would talk about it for a couple of hours. Um, eventually, our our sessions, there became so much content to cover that we started having them on Saturdays so that we could take six hours of that kind of thing to cover um, all of the material we were covering. Uh, yeah. And so through leading that group, I started to de- develop a confidence in speaking about deep learning. I started doing lectures uh, in late 2016. And at that time, uh, many people in data science had heard of deep learning, but didn't know the details at all. And so... Right. Yeah. And uh, so at that time, I could I could go to a meetup and say, I'd like to do an introductory talk on deep learning. And they would say, perfect. We've never had anyone talk about deep learning. Now, these same meetups, they have a deep learning talk every month. Um, But at that time, because it was yeah, it was relatively unknown, uh, it would be packed. Uh, so, you know, all of these meetups are people standing along the perimeter of the room and, you know, some of them had overflow rooms where they were live streaming the talk. And so I was like, wow, people are really interested in this. That,
0: that That's the power of deep learning. You know, it gathers people, <laughs>
1: right. it's, yeah, it's, I, uh, I it, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it's such a fascinating topic. And so, so through doing that and at one of these talks, early 2017. Um, there was a, a uh, an acquisitions editor from Pearson uh, whom I have now been working with uh, since then and uh, Deep Learning Illustrated was the first book that came out of that uh, relationship.
0: Nice, so what's the Illustrated in Deep Learning Illustrated?
1: Yeah, so I had this idea, it was actually inspired by a couple of things. Um, uh, for one, I found that when I was teaching in, at the front of the room in the study group Um, I would have many whiteboards. So I would have three or four very large whiteboards, and I would fill them all with uh, lots of drawings, schematics of how neural networks work and how these equations work. And I started to find that, you know, this kind of visual representation allowed people to learn very relatively easily things that could be difficult to dissect from an equation alone. So it was kind of from that idea and then... I was speaking to friends at brunch about, oh, you know, this book, you know, I have I'm going to write this deep learning book. And then it occurred to me that things just kind of came together. And I said, oh, well, actually, uh, you, Agli Bassens, you're a fine artist, you know, and I have this idea that, you know, using visualizations to convey this information could be very interesting. And um, she said, absolutely, I'd be really interested in that. Um, so that's, so aglae has been a friend of mine for some time. She's, uh, at that time she was the girlfriend. She's now the wife of one of my best friends. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it was just kind of organically this idea that she really latched onto and she, it was absolutely wonderful working with her. I was in New York when we were writing the book and she was living in Paris, but, uh, she was so, uh, intelligent and thoughtful about the things I was saying over the phone that she could very often first attempt create uh, a beautiful and often fun or whimsical illustration of what i was describing over the phone
0: well that's in fact a nice combination especially for the beginner you know it's it, it everything becomes so easy to to digest you know very complex equations and, and concepts behind deep learning that can be in fact you know digested just by looking at some graphs and some very very well drawn pictures that's cool
1: yeah thank you Francesco. yeah that was the idea <laughs>
0: So, John, the deep learning is changing, in fact, the way many problems get solved in several domains. This is no longer news. Now, I'd love to know a bit, you know, your personal opinion about what's going on in the world of research. And in particular, what do you think deep learning is bringing to the table that other approaches and methods don't, in fact?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So, the key distinction... In terms of the way that you can apply deep learning methods versus other kinds of machine learning approaches, is that deep learning methods are incredibly capable of figuring out what the most important aspects, what the most important features of your raw input data are in order to be able to map those raw input data to some outcome that you'd like to predict. So with any with uh, most kinds of machine learning models that you build, um, what we call supervised learning problems, you have some, some input that goes into your model, and then you use those inputs to try to predict some output uh, accurately. So this could be you know, feeding in the pixels of an image as inputs, and then as an output correctly classifying what kind of image this is, and you say, okay, well, you know, the algorithm says, oh, there's a 99% chance this is a dog based on the pixels that you passed into into this algorithm. So deep learning models are extraordinarily good at being able to figure out, okay, I need to build, I need to be able to distinguish cats from dogs. Um, So so it figures out what are the low level features amongst the pixels um, that represent cats versus dogs. And it also figures out how to combine these low level features into more complex, more abstract, shape, um, you know, visual representations. And so, what a deep learning network is, it's uh, it's composed of artificial neurons, which are really simple algorithms that are designed to loosely mimic the way the biological brain cells work. And if you you can arrange them together into what we call an artificial neural network, and this is designed to be similar to the way that um, biological neurons in your brain are connected to each other. And so if you stack many layers of these artificial neurons together, then you know going along with that machine vision example that I just gave, then you can have a first layer of artificial neurons that looks for very simple aspects of the input pixels like straight lines. And then a second layer of artificial neurons can recombine those straight lines into curves and corners. The third layer can recombine those curves and corners into even more complex, more abstract shapes until uh, sever- through several layers of these artificial neurons, you can then have it be be having a visual representation of what a dog is versus a cat and it can output very accurately whether it's looking at a dog or a cat so that ability to have these layers of artificial neurons and automatically extract from your inputs the most relevant parts of those inputs for solving the problem that you're trying to solve that's what makes deep learning so powerful
0: yes indeed and this approach in fact is working pretty well for computer vision but also for numerical analysis you uh, so know not only uh, not only images or like uh, you know distinguishing cats and dogs as you uh, mentioned already in your example now, uh, of course, this is taking place all over the domains, in fact. From biological vision to natural language processing, there are many language models that are that are based on, on deep learning. For example, the one of the most recent ones, uh, the GPT-2, uh, the, uh, which was not released by OpenAI, but by another guy who replicated it entirely. Uh, to machine art, uh, to video games, especially those ones... Uh, the ones published and, and proposed by open ai now it seems that deep learning is the way to go for anything right so what are the limitations you personally see in this technology
1: yeah so while deep learning can give state-of-the-art results in these kinds of applications that you're destri- describing and so it makes the headlines you know across yeah, machine vision, natural language processing, game playing capabilities. Deep learning is is constantly making a splash, but the catch is that many of these model architectures are very computationally intensive. And so if you're building a, a production system, so let's say at Untapped we build uh, lots of web applications that uh, work over the internet. And so... Um, these kinds of deep learning models, uh, the ones that we deploy, uh, it wouldn't be possible to have them run efficiently in the uh, client's browser. Um, so, you know, many models, you could just have it be downloaded and, and run within, say, the JavaScript uh, on, in the client's browser. So with deep learning models, you usually, though not always um you, you for any of these kind of very high accuracy high performance results you need to be running on on a remote server so even if you uh for example uh Siri uh the uh, you know the voice assistant on uh apple products um uh, that that voice assistant can't work without a connection to the internet because uh it needs to be it, it needs to be able to send off the waveforms that you speak into the phone uh into apple servers so that you know, big deep learning algorithms can can process the, uh, those wave, those sound waveforms efficiently. Um, so for many kinds of applications, it might be overkill to be using a deep learning algorithm. You might be able to solve the problem, maybe not exactly as well. But let's say you're getting uh, 99% accuracy with a deep learning algorithm, but you could be getting 97% accuracy with a random forest or a regression model. Um those, those other machine learning models might run a th- thousands of times more quickly and require a much less expensive compute. So, you know, in those kinds of situations, you might be better off, uh, you know, if if having state-of-the-art results isn't critical to the application, but efficiency is more important than today, um, you know, another machine learning model might be a better choice.
0: John, let me go a second back to the book. Uh, In Essential Theory, which is part two of your book, which I started reading before this interview, of course, uh, you explain the basics of neural networks and how to code them. Now, is there any particular framework or language that you use and and why?
1: Yes, so (laughs) we we use Python uh, as the language of choice in the textbook there are some other data science textbooks that use other languages but they are they're rare and they're increasingly rare Python is by far the most pop, um, popular language for uh, data science applications today um, and uh, you know a lot of back-end uh, algorithms in general and so Python it was an easy choice to say we'll use Python mm-hmm. for the book then in terms of particular libraries that we use in Python uh, the most popular library used for deep learning today is the TensorFlow library, which is a library that was open sourced out of Google a few years ago. And so we primarily use TensorFlow in the book um, since you know, it it is, it is still head and shoulders, the most popular uh, library, and, and it has been for some time. And in particular, TensorFlow had been for a long time uh, sort of cumbersome and uh, difficult to get started with. Um, with their recent TensorFlow 2.0 release um, in late 2019, that is uh, uh, that is that is becoming easier to use TensorFlow. But the reason why it has become easier to use TensorFlow is because of this high-level neural net building API called Keras. K E R A S. And so we we focus on using Keras in the book, and we so we use Keras to very easily build powerful deep learning TensorFlow uh, models behind the scenes, and um, so primarily the focus is TensorFlow and and using Keras to build these TensorFlow models. But on top of that, we also do provide an introduction to another library called PyTorch, which uh, was developed at Facebook, and this PyTorch library is increasingly popular. In fact, in in 2019. It has begun to eat somewhat into the popularity of TensorFlow, and the reason there's many reasons for this. Um, so PyTorch was uh, designed to be used in Python uh, natively, and so it feels very Pythonic. It uh, so as you use it, it feels uh, you know if you're used to coding in Python, it feels kind of the way you think it should. Whereas TensorFlow was ported over from. Um, C++, And so it doesn't feel quite as intuitive. Um, and uh, yeah, there are other reasons as well that we discuss in the book, but essentially it's se- because PyTorch is becoming more popular, we wanted to make sure that um, readers had exposure to PyTorch as well. And um, increasingly, I, I use some PyTorch when I teach uh, uh, deep learning introductory classes. So I still focus primarily on TensorFlow and Keras, but I do teach some PyTorch as well. Uh, Because if you learn those three uh, libraries, TensorFlow with Keras and um, PyTorch, then 99% of production deep learning systems, you'll be able to go in and understand what's going on and make changes to that. So, you know, you have all your bases covered. It also is interesting educationally by seeing... Uh, the differences between the way that you use PyTorch versus TensorFlow, you get to have a better understanding of the way that deep learning works.
0: What's your favorite one? <laughs> tough question, between Keras and PyTorch. Uh,
1: yeah, that is a tough one. And they also, they become more like each other all the time. So today, if you are, uh, if, you're, if your key interest is going to be deploying models into production systems, then TensorFlow is probably your best bet because TensorFlow has lots of uh, modules for deployment. So it has the TensorFlow Serving Library for deploying your models across um, lots of servers or for training models on lots of servers. There's the TensorFlow.js library so that you can deploy smaller models uh, into the person's browser. Uh, TensorFlow Lite for embedded applications, TensorFlow.io, and TensorFlow.data for your pre-processing. Um, needs so that you can have all of your preprocessing happen right in that tensorflow graph and so it's easily portable across devices so you might train on your laptop or a server and then you can deploy it to many servers or browsers so it's very it's very easy and portable um, and useful across uh, so many different kinds of applications whether you're talking very high power or very low power Um, so that's kind of that's that's the main advantage of TensorFlow, but uh, the PyTorch people are aware of that TensorFlow advantage. And so, you know, every few months with a new release of PyTorch, they are better at having PyTorch uh, yeah. algorithms ready for production. The flip side is that if you're mainly interested in building your um, uh, neural network, say in a Jupyter notebook interactively, um, then PyTorch yeah. m- might be more fun <laughs> to use. Um yeah, and then same thing, TensorFlow is uh, the big thing, this TensorFlow 2.0 release in late 2019, a huge uh, impetus behind that release was to make it um, more fun and easy to use hmm. like PyTorch is.
0: Well, personal choice, I prototype in Keras in like 10 lines of code. <laughs> I get my amazing neural network, I see if it works on my data, and then if I really want to squeeze the CPU on top of that, I just move it to PyTorch, that's a personal
1: uh touch on how i do things yeah that sounds great and you can also um something that uh is useful is there's an open standard o-n-n-x oh yeah onyx Onyx. yeah and so you can um you can build a neural network in pytorch and then deploy it into tensorflow serving by passing it through onyx so lots of ways that these libraries can work together i think it's it's great to learn how to use them both and you know you're familiar with both um, I'm, you know, I'm, you can probably attest to the fact that once you know one of them well, learning the other is fairly straightforward, right?
0: That's true. Like with any other language, after all. Yeah. John, what's, uh, what do you think are the most influential variables that you found, at least to the best of your knowledge or experience, Uh, you found to influence quality of training, of course, also generalization and convergence of these machine learning models?
1: Yeah, so I think probably the most important design decision is getting your layer type right. So there are different kinds of neural networks. Some of the most popular ones are convolutional neural networks, recurrent networks. Um, You can have just uh, networks that are called uh, dense networks, which are just... They're a relatively simple architecture, but can be useful in some use cases. So you have your choice of, you know, what kinds of layers of artificial neurons do you want to have in your network? And this is probably the most important design decision to uh, get a high-performing uh, and efficient neural network for the task that you're solving. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're solving a machine vision problem, then probably choosing a convolutional network. If you're solving some kind of problem that unfolds over time, like a natural language problem or a time series Prediction, then you might want to be using a recurrent network. Um, So that's probably the most important decision. Um, And then the other thing to make sure that your model is uh, generalizing well, uh, it's very straightforward in any of these libraries to use a technique called dropout, which you would definitely be familiar Mm -hmm. with, Francesco. Yes. And yeah, this dropout technique is a really simple. Ah, way where you' just you're randomly removing some artificial neurons from the network as it trains. and this prevents any single artificial neuron from becoming too influential in the network. And so it allows the model to generalize well. Um if people are familiar with um with ensembling a number of models, um it's the same kind mm-hmm. of idea.
0: yeah, there is also batch size, for example,. Rather.
1: Oh, I mean, Francesco, there are so many. I mean, I could, learning we rate. could talk for hours about all the possibilities. Optimizer. I, I thought, yeah, exactly. So what optimizer do you choose? Uh, what learning rate do you have on your optimizer? Mm-hmm. Um, you probably want to be using an optimizer that has an adaptive learning rate. So um, a very popular one is uh, Adam, which is mm-hmm. um, Nesterov Adaptive Moment. An optimizer that would probably be my go-to optimizer recommendation, and then there's all kinds of things around how many uh, layers of neurons do you have in your network, how many neurons do you have per layer. There are so many different hyperparameters that you can play around with. Then there's no way that we could go into detail on all of these um, configurations in this podcast, but I mean. In large part, that's the, that's the whole function of this book. Deep Learning Illustrated is meant to be, you know, my rules of thumb across all of these different possible hyperparameters, um, uh, you know, providing you guidance on how you, you make a decision. Absolutely. Now, John, let's talk about
0: something that you might be familiar with, which is bias. <laughs> <laughs> so bias and training in machine learning. Now, I have the feeling that bias is one of the most overlooked variables by practitioners and data scientists in general i know that you are involved in another project uh, to automate hr hr processes you mentioned untapped at the beginning of the of the show Um, Mm -hmm. so feel free to get back to that and uh, tell us where is the bias in hiring and uh, how do you guys take care of it
1: yeah so um many listeners uh are are to be data scientists of course and software engineers listening and so um we'll be aware that uh, for example you know in in the fields of data science and particularly in software engineering um there are there are more men than women in most markets and uh, this isn't something that many people are happy about we would prefer to have um a, a balance you know uh But, um, you know, for historical reasons, uh, there's, you know, this, 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 I don't know, there's this historical trend that's present in the data. And so we build, at Untapped we build uh, natural language processing models that use deep learning um, for automating various parts of human resources or recruitment processes. And a common example of of what we do is matching uh, candidates to jobs. So... Um, let's say you are a a huge corporate, you have a database of a million people who have applied to roles at your firm in the past year, and, uh, you want to be able to search that database for the the best people for this job description that you just opened. Um, so you have this new job opening, you have the natural language of that job description with the models that we build in untapped, you can throw that job description as a search query, um, across your database of million candidates, and then you get back instantly um, ranked from top to bottom: the first, the second, the third, all the way down to the millionth. Um, and that, and and each one comes with a score out of a hundred, um, you know, representing the probability that any given person would be invited to interview for a role. So when we're building a system like that, if we were to just blindly train on historical data, you might uh, end up baking biases into your algorithm. so if we were if you were then using this to find a software engineer, um, a, uh, a an algorithm could say, okay, well, you know ninety percent of the time software engineers are men. so it kind of it looks in the resumes for things that are uh, characteristic of of male applicants. and so one of so there's obvious things you can do like, you know, making sure that there's no demographic information that goes into the model. So that's kind of that's on the easy end of problems. So anything related to gender or race or age, you strip that information out of um, the the resumes before they go into the model. Um, but there's a trickier problem, which is that, uh, and there are there are companies that exist because this um, because of this fact. So there's a company called Textio, T-E-X-T-I-O, and this company specializes in, you can you can put a resume or a job description into their tool, and it tells you, okay, this language um, is, is biased towards uh, men. Like, this kind of language will appeal to men more than women, and so we suggest that you change the language in the job description so that it sounds more like this. Um, and so uh, men and women can write differently. They can write job descriptions differently, and they can write their resumes differently. And so we, uh, our company has been around for five years, and over the entirety of the, that five years, a huge amount of our research and development time goes into making sure that despite um, potential differences between um, the way that men and women might write resumes, um, as well as, uh, potential differences in, um, hiring rates, uh, based on, uh, gender or age or race, um, in a given sector. Uh, we've, we've been very careful to ensure that these, uh, models, uh, go into production without, uh, any of these unwanted biases.
0: John, what's the accuracy? Like, do you have Are you penalizing the accuracy somehow when you strip away some of these features or variables that are specific to one gender and not the other?
1: To my knowledge, no. That's actually, that's an interesting question because to some extent, you know, we've never trained a model where we left demographic information in, for example. Um, So in some ways it's difficult for me to, to answer that question. My instinct is no, not in any way I would be worried about it. So, you know, if we're losing a a tiny portion of accuracy, but that means that a woman is uh, is being considered on equal terms to a man, then I'm not even worried about that small decrease in accuracy. But I I don't think I can't think of a reason why there would be a decrease in accuracy. But I haven't actually I haven't tested that, and for a lot of reasons, it would be difficult to kind of compare uh you know apples to apples there.
0: John, in the book, you also dedicate a chapter to reinforcement learning, which is one of my favorite topics. Uh, Well, in fact, also deep reinforcement learning is a very interesting one. Uh, For the record, deep reinforcement learning is whenever you use a deep learning network for uh, action estimation or or state estimation. Uh, So we have seen reinforcement learning working pretty well on, I must say, quite narrow domains or problems like, you know, the super famous Atari games and uh, the OpenAI gym but very little in real-world applications. Now, there is one of the most recent episodes on this show uh, in which we tackle the problem of deep reinforcement learning and reinforcement learning in general, in which we said things about, you know, the limitations of, uh, of reinforcement learning, and one of the reasons why we, in fact, do not see reinforcement learning in, you know, in everyday life, in all the problems around us. So I would like to know what's your opinion on that. Is there some kind of limitation uh, in this paradigm of computation
1: and modeling? Yeah. So part of the part of the reason why you see reinforcement learning algorithms so much more often uh, in silico, in you know some kind of uh, artificial environment, some kind of simulated environment, as opposed to in the real world, is that it's very expensive in most cases to generate reinforcement learning algorithm training data in a real world environment. So um, reinforcement learning problems, as you mentioned, it involves predicting state or action. So this involves having um, an algorithm that we can call an agent. We can say this: we have this agent exploring its environment. And as that agent explores the environment, it has an impact on the environment. So if you're thinking about, say, a self-driving car, um, as that car presses the gas or turns the steering wheel, then that changes the world around the car. And, and so other kinds of machine learning models like supervised learning problems, unsupervised learning problems, those don't impact the, the data. But in reinforcement learning problems, every decision that the reinforcement learning algorithm makes changes the data. Hmm. And so if if we build a system, you mentioned uh, OpenAI, Jim. So if we if we use a system like OpenAI Gym, which is an open source uh, library for simulating reinforcement learning data, or if we have our algorithm playing Atari video games, as you mentioned, um, this allows us to generate a large amount of training data relatively inexpensively. You just have the servers running. But if you want to build a reinforcement learning algorithm in the real world with, say, a self-driving car, like the example I gave, or some kind of robot, then you're going to need to wait... For all of these real-world data to be collected, which is going to be incredibly time-consuming, and there are, of course, companies—you know, self-driving car companies. This is a huge part of what they do. But even then, they they use simulated data to help uh, their algorithms learn. So they use um, some companies use Grand Theft Auto, the video game, um, to help train <laughs> their self-driving cars. Because um, so even if you have in a simulated environment you can create lots of examples of uh, rare events or, or very bad events but if you're a self-driving car company and you're trying to just use data collected off of real world self-driving cars, how many crashes can you simulate or, you know, situations where you're approaching a crash or, you know, hitting a pedestrian. There's so many kinds of situations that are difficult to get in the real world or or very expensive to obtain in the real world. And so I think this is one of the reasons why we see reinforcement learning more frequently applied to video games or board games where we can simulate data. Um I, I think it it isn't so much the case that reinforcement learning algorithms aren't applicable to real world problems. It's just that it's much, 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 much cheaper, many, many orders of magnitude cheaper to build a reinforcement learning algorithm that works in a simulated environment than a real world one.
0: I cannot agree more. Now, of course, deep reinforcement learning is probably at least, you know, from a Uh, journalistic perspective, so to speak, it's the closest thing we have, you know, from how people perceive this, this technology is the closest thing we have to what people call artificial general intelligence or superhuman intelligence. Do you Mm -hmm. think, or do you believe we will ever build an AGI agent?
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So if you think about um, an algorithm that can correctly classify something as being a cat or a dog, um, this is, uh, you know, you don't, yeah, you know, does that really, this doesn't feel like some science fiction AI of the future. Um, but having a robot that can walk around and make you tea and then drive you to work and beat you at chess and manage your stock portfolio, this kind of um, robot or machine, this seems more like uh, the AI of the future that we see in movies. And and so this is an artificial general intelligence, um, which, is yeah, so it's it's a single algorithm that has all of the um, intellectual capabilities uh, and flexibilities of a, a given human, and so today all we have is artificial narrow intelligence. As you, so you mentioned, ANI, AGI, SI. So artificial narrow intelligence. This is what we have today in so many different domains. So in terms of uh, so as of last week. Um, uh, for the first time, the majority of trades in equity markets are executed by machines as opposed to humans. Um, and of course, you know, being able to dictate into Siri on your phone and have the Siri application create notes. This is another example of a narrow application, artificial narrow intelligence. And there are even actually, returning briefly to the, to the DeepRL example, um, Google DeepMind, Uh, you know, these people who had the AlphaGo algorithm, uh, which is pretty famous. And it's also a really good movie that you can watch on Netflix um, with 100% Rotten Tomatoes. It's a documentary about uh, this AlphaGo algorithm that uh, plays the the popular Asian board game Go. And so it's the stated mission of Google DeepMind to develop artificial general intelligence. And the way that they're doing that is by building uh, deep reinforcement learning models that are gradually more and more generalized. So, um, you know, they started with a deep reinforcement learning algorithm that could play uh, just a few Atari video games, and then they and then they expanded on their architecture so that 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 one model could play many Atari games very well. Um, and same thing, they started with the AlphaGo algorithm that was very very good at uh, AlphaGo, but then they later. Devised a deep reinforcement learning model called Alpha Zero, which was not only way better at Go than Alpha Go was, but it is also better at chess and uh, a game called Shogi, which is like Japanese chess. Uh, it is better than any existing um, uh, computer algorithm at at chess and Shogi as well. So, you know, so so they are gradually generalizing from one from a narrow algorithm. To an algorithm that generalizes to more and more applications. Um, so the idea is: can we can we keep expanding from that? Can we go from an algorithm that can play Go to an algorithm that can play Go, Chess, and Shogi, to an algorithm that can play Go, Chess, Shogi, and drive you to work and balance your stock portfolio? Well, there's so many hurdles between now and then. Um, and So yeah, so we don't really know. There's no way to know for sure whether it is possible to build an AGI. There are some of the major hurdles today. So we say, okay, deep reinforcement learning seems like the best approach. Some problems with modern deep learning or deep reinforcement learning are that there's no sense of the difference between um, uh, cause uh, versus correlation. So um, all of these models are they learn how to map some input to some output, but they are completely clueless about causal direction. So they they know that X is related to Y, but they have no way of of saying that X causes Y or Y causes X. Whereas a person is quite you know even a small child is quite good at figuring out cause and effect.
0: Uh, many times they don't even have a knowledge of what X
1: and Y are right absolutely i mean that's yeah, they they're completely clueless they have they've have, they have no access to any kind of um knowledge as we think about it you know these algorithms they don't have they they don't, they're not plugged into wikipedia and able to say to 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 improve their inferences based on you know factual knowledge in any way uh and one of the reasons why that is so difficult is that Deep learning algorithms or deep reinforcement learning algorithms, we train them with a technique called backpropagation, and you can't backpropagate over a factual database. Um, So there are approaches uh, like neural Turing machines that are evolving that use backpropagation, but then uh, have ways of accessing factual information. But these work very slowly and, and are very, very, very narrow in in scope today. But So, despite these kinds of limitations, so you know, cause and effect, also deep, uh, any machine learning algorithm today typically requires very large amounts of training data. Whereas, you know, a true general intelligence, like even a little child, can often, from just an example or two, um, be able to, uh, you know, understand a relationship and remember that relationship. so, yeah, so those are some problems. Uh, you know, those are some of the reasons why uh, we, we don't know how we're going to get to a general intelligence with the approaches that we have today. Um, and as we begin to tackle some of these limitations, um, other hurdles will become visible. So, um, An influential futurist named Nick Bostrom, who's a a faculty member at Oxford University, he did a survey a couple of years ago at a AI conference, and he asked these AI specialists when they thought that AGI would occur, and the median estimate was 2040. um, Oh, okay, which is pretty soon. Yeah, I think I'm going to see that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a lot of people listening to this podcast will be around in 2040. And so, you know, does that so? um, Ray Kurzweil talks about that the, the creation of AGI as being this singularity where, as soon as we attain that, we don't know what lies beyond. So, if we can engineer an intelligence or engineer machines to engineer an intelligence that is more intelligent than any given person on the planet then what happens after that is completely unknown. So you mentioned ASI, which is artificial superintelligence. This is an intelligence that is more intelligent than humans. And from that same Nick Bostrom survey, the median estimate of when we will attain AS, ASI is 2060. But that is completely, I mean, there's, an, there's absolutely no way to have a, a good grounds for making that estimation because it could be the case that the moment that we create AGI, ASI happens seconds later.
0: That's when you reach the singularity. I mean, everything becomes approachable. John, we could stay here and speak all Friday night and Saturday <laughs> included. <laughs> uh, well, it was uh. very nice to have you here on the show. I'm very sure that the listeners of Data Science yeah. atom podcast will. Uh, enjoy this conversation as much as i did and of course they will also enjoy uh, reading your book uh, deep learning illustrated of which we'll uh, report uh, of course all the links and all the way to purchase the book or or uh, uh and all the other things that we have discussed in this show uh in the show notes of this episode so um I remind all the listeners of uh, datascienceat home.com and if the listeners want a nice deal they can surf to informit.com i n f o rmit.com dsathome. This link will also be reported in the show notes of the episode. They can use code dsathome to get a 40% off all books and ebooks and 60% off all video training courses. So go ahead, guys. John, it was great to have you here. I'm looking forward to see your next project.
1: Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to be on the show, Francesco. Such great questions and so easy speaking with you. Thank you very much. See you soon.
0: You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.